but you mentioned Artie. I'm a huge Artie Lang fan, and I'm curious if he'll be on the HBO show. Um, <clears throat> I thought it was very unfortunate for Joe because Artie stupidly ruined Joe's first show. Welcome to another edition of Here's the Pitch. I'm your YouTube friend, Brad, uh, your podcast friend, Brad, and it's sponsored, as always, by Masses Restaurants. Five locations in St. Louis. STLMasses.com is their website. Go there if you're driving through St. Louis during the holidays. Check them out. And uh, I know my next guest, I'm sure, has had some T-Ravs or maybe a thin crust pizza from Masses. St. Louis and Bob Costas? I I don't know. What do we say now? I I think of myself that way. Okay. When people ask me what my hometown is, I say St. Louis. When they ask me where I was born and raised, I say New York. And I'm in New York much more than St. Louis these days, especially because of COVID. But I think of St. Louis as my hometown. When was the last time you actually lived here? 2011. Okay. So the Cardinals win, you say, I'm done, I'm getting out. Pretty much. As soon as the World Series is over, I packed up and left. Although then they won the pennant two years after that, too. But didn't win the World Series. That's right. And they, well, long story. They, sh- they should have. They should not have pitched to Poppy, Bob. I'm still not happy that they did. They pitched to Poppy the whole. He had 700. Well, actually, they walked him a lot in that series. They walked him intentionally, like three or four times, I think. Yeah. As I remember, they it was it wasn't quite at a Barry Bonds level, but it was close. Um, well. I'm, I, I hope there's more World Series, and then you'll come back, and we'll see you in St. Louis. And I was just—I know it's very weird to do these in your home, but this is your New York. We, we've seen your, like I said, we've seen your kind of your kitchen setup on the on the on the West Coast. This is your East Coast setup. I love it. It's very homey. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I assume you in mind. Thank you. I assume you're there because of obviously um, your HBO commitments, MLB Network commitments, but. Tell us a little bit about uh, HBO. Back on the record, I've seen um, you know first four episodes. Obviously, uh, right back where you left off, basically in 08. Uh, interviews, good panel, uh, some some commentary from you. Um, just got to be fun, right? And how many more? Is there more coming? Are these kind of quarterly? Tell us a little bit about the schedule. No, no more this year. <clears throat> the next one uh, in 2022 is January 21st. Uh, the only thing I asked was that I always want each premiere episode to follow a new Bill Maher so that I get Bill Maher's audience. Bill and I are pretty friendly. Uh, there's some overlap in sensibility there. And the first four shows, it was designed to be a quarterly show, uh, but COVID kept pushing it back. So to get four in in 2021, uh, we did them four consecutive months. So now we'll settle into something closer to a quarterly rhythm. Um, and I think there's a pretty good chance that after 2022, there'll be more than four shows a year. But I'm, I'm good with four for, for now. I was going to say the format almost follows Bill Maher. Sure, you get the show, except he does a monologue. You do a monologue at the end, but he has new rules. You've got the long interview. He does a long interview. He does a panel. I really kind of like how they're sort of, you know, his is more, you know, obviously politically bent, news bent. Yours is the sports yeah. bent. Is that, was that on purpose? They're, they're, no, not really, but they're kind of companion shows. And we feel that if you are a sports fan and if you watch Bill Maher, then this is the kind of sports show you're likely to watch on a Friday night. Of course, with HBO, uh, there's a zillion repeats. There's HBO On Demand. There's HBO Max. Um, so I don't know how many people who ultimately wind up watching it actually watch it in real time no pun intended in the case of Bill Maher, actually watch it 
from, in my case, 11 p.m. to midnight uh, on that Friday night Eastern time. But as long as they watch it, it's it's okay by me. And I think the big difference between this, if there is a big difference, and on the record, and obviously by the title, back on the record, we're not trying to reinvent anything, but each program ends with an extended commentary by me. I did some commentaries before for on the record, but they were two minutes long, two and a half. Now, like Mar does with the last of the new rules, the first few new rules are quick punches, just punch lines. But then the last one is an editorial of some kind, which he develops over six, seven, eight minutes. Um, and it's similar in that respect, not as many laugh lines, plus we don't have a studio audience. Uh, but the idea is that however long within reason it takes for me to develop a thought that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, I think of the four that we've done so far, the shortest was a little over four minutes and the longest was about six and a half. And, and that's enough time to, to lay out your case and to make your point. And unfortunately, you have a crew there that gives you that off-camera <laughs> laughter, which I, I find is, ne is necessary at some of these type things. You know, when you get that off-camera crew laughter, that's earned laughter because generally speaking, the audience comes to whatever the show is, Jimmy Fallon, David Letterman back in the day, they come ready to laugh. Not that those guys weren't and aren't brilliant, but they come ready to laugh. When I did later, um, after Letterman in the 80s and 90s, and I know you watch that show a lot because you often quote it back to me verbatim, when comics came on, uh, Richard Lewis, Jerry Seinfeld, um, Rickles, Gary Shandling, whoever it might have been, uh, they had to earn those laughs. And when you when you heard when you heard the crew, the stage manager, the cameramen, the lighting people, when you heard them laughing, it's almost conspiratorial. You know, it's like that that's earned. That's you're you're in on the joke here, especially at 1:30 in the morning. Um, so I've actually told them we had a production meeting yesterday, and I said, you know, we've got to mic the not put microphones on each of the people in the crew, but have a couple of boom mics so that you pick up more of that laughter because I can hear it when they laugh. And then when I see the show back, it's, it's more faint. And I'd like the, the audience at home to have more of a sense that uh, the people on the floor got it. I do. I've always, I'm, I'm a huge fan of behind the scenes stuff. So no, like, and, and those crew guys have been there probably 10 hour days, 12 hour days. It's, yeah. this is, you know, this is work. So when you get them to laugh, any teaser for January, can you give us a teaser yet? Have you, have you figured out what's going on? Uh, the only person we have booked for the show is Lindsay Vaughn because we're just a couple of weeks from the start of the Winter Olympics, so she's a good person to talk about that. Um, I can tell you what the subjects generally will be. We're only a few days removed from the announcement of the next Hall of Fame class, if in fact anybody gets elected. That happens on the 25th on our show, airs on the 21st. So there'll be some baseball stuff about that. And the football playoffs will have started leading into the Super Bowl. And there are always issues and controversies surrounding the NFL. And then you have the Winter Olympics. And I'm not talking so much about, you know, who's going to win the luge. I'm talking about another Olympics in China with all the issues that that brings to the fore. Um, and how much longer can the IOC get away with its strange affinity, maybe not so strange when you think it through, for authoritarian nations? That's what the... Uh, the first commentary was about on the first back on back on the record show. Um, I used to ask about that when I hosted the Olympics where I could, 
I would make those points, but it just didn't have enough time. But I always posed those questions to the presidents of the IOC and other Olympic officials when I interviewed them on camera. But the format on a network in prime time doesn't allow the host to say, wait a minute, stop everything. I got a six minute thought I'm going to lay out right here. It doesn't work that way. This is not, this is not like Keith Oberman on MSNBC. So now um, I was able to pull all those thoughts together in one place, but they're not thoughts that I hadn't broached before. You know, I, I don't allow much of what happens in terms of reaction to annoy me. Um, I'm way past it. And besides, even if, even if you are among, and I think I'm among the people who have, been, who have been treated very kindly in the big picture, and I'm appreciative of that and aware of it, but still in this atmosphere with social media and all the rest and with hyper-partisan news coverage, no prominent person gets out unscathed. And so trying to set the record straight on every stray thing is like swatting at locusts. So generally, I, I wouldn't even address it, but I will address this one thing. Here's something that does tick me off. The people who think that mere cynicism is the same thing as insight, or the people who think that whatever ignorant notion occurs to them that they pull out of their rear end, they might as well just throw out there. And so whether it was after I left NBC uh, and the issue was football, or now uh, when I opened with that commentary about the IOC, I did hear some, oh, that's all great, that's all fine, but why didn't he say it when he was getting paid to cover the NFL and, and the Olympics? Well, there's a technical term for that. And that technical term is bullshit. Because if this were a court of law and that was the charge, all I'd have to do is bring in the dozens of tapes on NBC, on other places, on programs like this, in print. I did all that stuff. I did all those commentaries. I asked all those questions in interviews. I made all those points. Just because some of these airheads weren't paying attention and because they think it makes them like somebody calling some hypocrisy out to say, oh, yeah, back when he was on the Olympic gravy train, he didn't say all this. And now all of a sudden, he's, he's Mr. Crusader. No, not true. I did. Now I'm just doing it again. And I have a little more time at one, at one particular time. But cumulatively, I did much more of it over the years at, at NBC, whether it was football, whether it was steroids in baseball, whether it was the corruption of the Olympics, whatever it might be. I've always felt that even if 90, 95% your feeling is, I embrace this, I love it, I enjoy it, just like most of the people watching enjoy it, and it's my job and, and I enjoy it to present it in an entertaining and informative way, but you cannot, especially if you're the host, maybe in a play-by-play -play role you can get away with it, but if you're the host, I don't think you can ignore the elephants in the room. I'm not helming an investigative unit and looking under rocks for everything, but if it's right there, like at this Olympics coming up in Beijing and all these issues, it's right there in front of you. I mean, if you're going to ignore that and not address that, you might as well just wear a sign, like walk around with a sandwich board sign that says, I'm a complete shill. And I didn't want to do that. Well, I'm just curious. Will you be bringing the pink eye back for this show just for old times? I'm sure the Olympics people think well, of that. I, I didn't. I, I mentioned it on the first show. I got a laugh. Um, no, no, uh, that's not something I chose, nor is it something I caused. 
Um, and is, you want to talk about swatting at locusts? Nothing that I'm aware of that's out there about how I got pink eye is even one one millionth of 1% true. All bullshit. But what are you going to do? If you address it, if you address it, it only amplifies it. Bullshit. I love that. We don't usually curse on this podcast. No, I'm kidding. We, we can say whatever we want, Bob. Um, you should get on Twitter where you can actually address all these things, Bob. Uh, no. I was curious. I loved, uh, I loved your interview with Jerry Jones. Jerry, to me, is the most important person in football, maybe the most influential person in sports. Everybody knows that Roger Goodell is a commissioner, but really everyone yeah. takes their marching orders from Jerry. What were your thoughts on, on that interview? He's difficult because he's, he's an oil man. He's, he's slippery. Um, I was interested to watch you try to work stuff out of him, and, and he, you know, he doesn't give a lot. I thought there was some there, no, but how did you, you know, feel it went? Sometimes, sometimes the best you can do is present the question or the premise, and then the answer is what the answer is. He's a fascinating character. He's like a real-life J.R. Ewing from Dallas, appropriately enough. Um, he's a charming rogue most of the time. There's a twinkle in his eye. Uh, and you're right, if, if he isn't the most influential person, he's certainly among the most influential people in all the sports. Um, he benefited, and we didn't have time because it's a national program, so you don't have the intense level of interest in this issue that you would have in St. Louis. But it wasn't just that he, uh, that he was an ally of Stan Kroenke in moving the team to Los Angeles. He benefited from that move because his legends sports operation that takes care of all the concessions and other ancillary stuff at the new SoFi Stadium, and if I'm not mistaken, they've got an arrangement uh, at Yankee Stadium as well, Jerry profits from this in a way that he wasn't making a dime off what happened in St. Louis. Uh, from a standpoint of a businessman, if the coast was clear, Almost any businessman would have, would, putting aside any other considerations, would have moved the team from St. Louis to Los Angeles. And it's better for the league. Uh, the stadium is is a gold mine. You're going to have Super Bowls, including this year, and many more in the future in that stadium. There was never going to be a Super Bowl in St. Louis. It's better for the league. But what about the people you screwed? You know, So $790 million is substantial, but they're probably getting off easy. Um, St. Louis, I think it's kind of a game of chicken. People in St. Louis assume that because all of the preliminary judgments went St. Louis's way, but they were all in local uh, courts, that it was automatic that each step of the way, St. Louis would prevail. But you have to look at the possibility that they might not. So at what point, what's the breaking point? And what's the breaking point for the league? We're willing to pay something to get out of this, just to get it out of our hair, and not to have to deal with the discovery and, and what might come out unrelated. Just ask John Gruden when you get into that stuff. Um, so there was, I, I think, some sort of mutual game of chicken. And at what point are we each going to veer off the road and settle? And I guess that point was $790 million. But there, I, I see no chance whatsoever that, that an NFL team will ever come back to St. Louis. They just don't value the market enough, and they believe now having paid this nearly $800 million that they've washed their hands of it.
Yeah, and I'm, you know, I'm in my 40s, and I've seen two teams leave. I don't understand anybody in my age range or above wanting another team or wanting to deal with that. I didn't even ask you about that, but you, you brought up uh, the, the lawsuit, and I was going to ask you about it. What People are not happy about $790 million in St. Louis. I mean, the overall thought by St. Louisans, which is also a problem for me, Bob, as you being a St. Louisan, this is a lot of money. Now, the problem, there's the second problem is what are they going to do with it? And I, that's the one that scares me because you've been around politics in this city for years. I'd be curious to know what you would like to see with it done, even though you haven't been here since 2011. But how folks in this town don't understand that this is a win. This, this was a W. This, this, you don't, the NFL does not get fleeced like this. And even if you think, well, this is a, a penny in there, it still, it made them squirm. It made them not feel good. It made them not want to talk. I mean, those are the kind of things that, as a person who doesn't like the NFL, like myself, okay, we, we scared them a little bit. And they, they don't like to be scared. So what would you do with the money? Right. What did you think of the settlement? And, and I guess you kind well, of answered it. To your point, it's essentially an admission, a tacit admission of wrongdoing on the part of the league, or that at least in the course of doing something that they are happy in the big picture they did, somebody was done wrong. And they have to be, to some extent, made whole for that, at least to some extent. Um, I don't know enough about local city and county politics at this point to say this specific thing should be done. But... I would hope that a good portion of it goes toward education. Uh, without getting too political here, I've always felt that education is a basic right and it benefits society overall if that opportunity is close to equally available to everyone. And so I hope that city schools, I hope this could be true in some sense all around the country, that there's a certain baseline that, that a school in North St. Louis, whatever other problems may beset those communities, that that school could be some kind of oasis. You cannot, this is America, you cannot stop people from sending their kids to private schools. We sent our kids to private schools, but we lived in the Parkway School District. So therefore, a school in North St. Louis should be roughly comparable to a public school in the Parkway School District. In an ideal America, and when you think of the money that goes toward other things, governmental programs, some effective and some right down the drain, that's an investment in the community as a whole and in the country's future. If any kid, no matter the circumstances, who wants it has access to a certain baseline quality of education. So I would hope that some portion of this $790 million goes in that direction. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a ton of problems, but it's probably the first. It's one is let's get people educated in town. Um, let's change and switch gears. Bob Uecker, you told a story about him on a, a podcast I was listening to. I try to check out things that you've been saying, and I was interested in your uh, conversation, I think, with um, some, some media folks um, or, or and, and their podcast, and um, you told yeah. the Bob Uecker story. With the button, I was just curious how how well did you know him before you started broadcasting with him in '95? And if you have uh, some favorites, he's a funny guy. I mean, there's not many more people as sharp as him. How how well did yeah. you know him before you started working with him for the Baseball Network? I knew him pretty well, um, but we really forged what is now a close friendship when we worked together in the '90s. Uh, and I'm not the only one to say this. Is he very funny on the air? Yes. 
Um, was he very funny with Johnny Carson? Yeah, Johnny wasn't that big a baseball fan, and he brought him back like 75 times. Was he hysterically funny in the major league movies where he essentially wrote his own stuff or ad-libbed his own stuff? Yeah, great. But however funny you think that is, he is funnier still unfiltered. When he doesn't have to worry, and he doesn't really worry very much as it is about political correctness is just not a consideration for Bob. But there are some constraints when he's on the air. Off the air, this guy, I mean, comedians will tell you, Norm MacDonald, Artie Lang, people have hung out with him, even though Norm and Artie kind of fell out with him when they crossed a certain line, which we can talk about later. But professional comedians view Euchre as, you know, almost one of them. I, I've heard a lot of guys who, who do comedy for a living say that Bob Euchre is the funniest guy they've ever hung around with. I, yeah, he's... I think he's so quick, um, and it just, it's funny, too, because I like to listen to Brewers broadcast when I'm up clear up there or if I can turn on the MLB app and just kind of plug him in, and it kind of makes me angry that he's doing the game straight. I want some Bob Uecker. I want Harry Doyle, and he's not going to give you much of that. He's going to give you the game, and he's great. Yeah, it's true, and what's amazing, he's 87 years old. He'll be 88 in January, and most of us, at some point, start to decline a little bit, certainly when they get into their 80s. He sounds basically just the same as he did 20 years ago. His call of the game is excellent. I think you know, he's still occasionally fun, but if you're listening and hoping that every single game you'll hear a gem from Bob, that's not going to happen. And part of the reason is when he's on the air on the radio, he's essentially working alone. If he has somebody to work off of, like we did on television, um, then it then it tends to open things up for him comedically a little bit more. Yeah, and you mentioned in that podcast about the story was Norm went on Letterman and talked about how Bob would use the button, the cough button, which I've seen Mike Shannon has done to me on the phone where you he's too on pitch and then he'll say something and you're like, how did he? So there's a cough button and and Bob is saying some crazy stuff. But you mentioned Artie. I'm a huge Artie Lang fan and I'm curious if he'll be on the HBO show. He had kind of a, a debut there one time. I'm not, I don't think he'll be on, but I'm curious, when, did you see that moment when he was with Joe Buck? Joe Buck basically sort of, you know, took on your time slot in that show. What did you yeah. think of that, and how would you have handled that? Because it was a different show than, than you were trying to do. I think Joe was trying to lighten up a little bit with a little more comedy, a little more entertainment flair. But what was your thoughts when you saw it, and, and how would you have handled a situation like that? Well, two things. Artie Lang is not my cup of tea. I would not have invited him on if I did 100 shows. I would not have invited him on. Um, <clears throat> I thought it was very unfortunate for Joe because Artie stupidly ruined Joe's first show, you know, and it sent the show into kind of a spiral, a downward spiral. Um, so A, I wouldn't have had him on, but B, if I did, and he, and he started to act that way, I would have thrown him off the show. You know, we're not here for this. Take a hike. Here's something, though. Um, Joe is very talented and he's very good. Like on Brock Meyer, he's terrific. He's very good in these comedic situations. So there's no doubt that he can do a show that's a hybrid between sports and entertainment, that he can do comedic stuff. But people tend to want everything to go into one neat little category. So if it's like, oh, well, Bob was doing the serious journalistic stuff and Joe is more lighthearted, just look at who the guests were on On the Record. 
I had to make a choice. HBO made me choose between staying with them or going to the new baseball network. It's a tough choice, and I went to the baseball network. But right up until that time, among the guests on the show were Chris Rock and Jerry Seinfeld and Richard Lewis and Tina Fey and Rodney Dangerfield and Billy Crystal and uh, John Stewart and on and on and on. You know, so this this idea that this was that one guy's straight laced and the other guy's more freewheeling. Usually things are, are more nuanced than that. There's usually a combination of factors. And if there isn't a combination of factors, then you're pretty one dimensional. And then Norm MacDonald was the other person we mentioned there. And it made me start thinking, well, man, you were on that that building. SNL's right there. How often yeah. did, did you go? Did you watch rehearsals? Tell me a little bit about just being in that building, knowing that's a special place. I mean, that show was 15 years old, probably in, in the point where you start doing later. But you're you're at NBC even earlier than that. I mean, 1985. It started in 75, so we can do the math. Yeah, 75. I arrived at NBC in 1980. Um, Did you ever go I, hang out and watch him rehearse and get to know those? I mean, with, yeah, yeah. No, I would. I would go. You know, Dick Ebersol, who um, became the head of NBC Sports in the late 80s was the co-creator of Saturday Night Live with Lauren Michaels in the mid-70s. And then there was a period of time in the early 80s when Lauren took a celebrated hiatus away from the show and Dick came back in and ran the show and brought in some of the best performers in SNL history. So Dick had that connection. So and Dick and I were close. So a lot of times we'd you know, wander up there. Uh, we were on the sixth floor. They were in 8-H. We'd wander up there and, and see what was going on. Sometimes we watched rehearsals. Sometimes we watched dress rehearsals. Sometimes we watched the, the live show when it rolled out at, at 1130. You know, sometimes people will say to me, when do they tape that? <laughs> no, it's Saturday night live. It's live, pal, with all the danger that that implies. Did you ever go down there and see something being rehearsed and go, this is going to, you know, something crazy like Wayne's World or just something that came out of, out of nowhere. Or, or was it more just kind of being around that, that, uh, that building? Well, Rickles, when Rickles was the guest host and everybody revered him, you know, all the young comics totally revered Don Rickles, the way they revered Dangerfield. It's like, this isn't what we do, but we recognize why it was great. Um, and there were living legends. Rickles would not stay on script you know so, so these guys are trying to figure out where do i come in with this line that we rehearsed but rickles just went off and did a rickles thing the whole time and if you ever come across i mean it's many many years ago uh but if you ever come across it you, you'll see the other the other saturday night live players they're trying not to laugh when they're not supposed to laugh according to the script and he just commandeered the whole show but it was brilliant in its own way the other thing that people don't know is that the dress rehearsal is usually two hours and they judge. There's a, an, an audience and then a new audience comes in for the actual show. So the dress rehearsal is like at eight o'clock um, and then they judge what works. So a half hour's worth of material minus commercials goes away and they might rearrange like, hey, that fourth thing worked better than the second thing. Let's move the fourth thing to the second spot. Um so you've heard me mention this before, uh, if you remember, if, who knows, but I've, I, as a child, my Mount Rushmore of broadcasting, and you've, you've kind of been kind of a little angry with me about this, is, is you. Uh, it was David Letterman, then it was Howard Stern and Vince McMahon. 
Um, so as I've evolved and I've gotten older, I've... This was baseball. This was baseball, two for four. <laughs> Be hitting five out. But no one really cares about batting average anymore. But uh, we'll talk about baseball in a second. But I was curious, because me and you've kind of hinted around Howard Stern and kind of talked about how he's kind of changed. Would, is that something that you might see yourself being on that show or, or have you enjoyed how he's evolved? And because I know I've, I've heard you talk about that a little bit, that it's been interesting to see him change his sort of way he goes about doing his radio show. He is an exceptional interviewer. Um, and you could always tell that he was an extraordinary radio talent, but for my taste, some of that talent was misdirected. There was a lot of mean spirited stuff, schadenfreude type stuff. Um, you know, reveling in other people's misfortune or humiliation type of thing. Um, you could tell that he was talented and capable of better than that. But now on Sirius XM, it's a whole different thing. He has all the time in the world uh, to develop a subject, to delve into uh, an interview. And more often than not, it's very, very good. He's one of the best interviewers on any broadcast platform. And he's obviously very intelligent and he's obviously also curious. Even when he's talking with someone where it's kind of outside his expertise or knowledge, and he's not really, for example, a big time sports fan, and you can tell that he doesn't have some of the particulars like you might, but he still asks good questions. And that comes from a lively, intelligent curiosity. So, you know, if I was evaluating Howard Stern, the first half of his career, I would say not my cup of tea, but obviously talented. But now I would say not only is it very, very good, but I'm a fan of it. Would you be on the show if they asked? I guess. I don't know. It's a Zoom call. Uh, it's a Zoom I'm call. Not, I'm not lobbying for it. Vince McMahon, um, you know, there's a new book about HBO. You're in that, um, of course, because you've been on HBO and just today, I think I saw an excerpt, James Andrew Miller. There's excerpts coming out. And Vince McMahon now says he was going to beat you up if you were bigger. Did you see this? Did you see that comment? Did you? Oh, well, he's, he's said that before. Um, and now it's just back in circulation because uh, the book has come out um, and various excerpts are getting attention. Uh, it's, a, it's an oral history. So a zillion people are interviewed and little excerpts of their observations. And that was a moment in HBO history when... McMahon and I went, if not toe-to-toe, then nose-to-nose. And here's my, here's my answer to this. Um, let's test Vince's premise, okay? He probably outweighed me two to one. I weigh around 150. He might have weighed, especially then, certainly 275 at a minimum, maybe 300 pounds. And who knows what it might have enhanced uh, that, that physical standing. But in any case... Um, his premise was, or is, that, well, if Bob and I were closer in size, his line of questioning was ticking me off, and we would have come to blows, and I would have beat the crap out of him. Let's test this premise. Let's suppose somebody's on Meet the Press, and they don't like Chuck Todd's line of questioning. They're a congressman or senator, and like Chuck, they're roughly 5'10 to 6 feet tall, and they weigh between 175 and 185. So they're in the same weight class. It would be entirely appropriate for the senator from whatever state to just go to blows. Well, think about that. Think what this premise is. 
I don't like your line of questioning, but as long as it's a fair fight, I should be allowed to kick the shit out of you. Brilliant. Well, he is a wrestling. You really have, you really have to respond to something that stupid? No. On its face, it's it's idiotic. He's, he's a circus promoter. It's what he is, though. That's why it's so there. Well, yeah. By the way, what, what really ticked him off was this. I mean, it's obvious he was getting very, very angry. It was great TV. People still talk about it. It was 20 years ago. Um, I didn't expect it to go that way. But when it did and when he went off, it didn't throw me off. You know, and I think I've said this many, many times. Um, he's not dumb. If you looked at a transcript of this, might have been a might have been a draw. But on tone, he's losing his shit. And I'm just like, okay, let's let's proceed. So if this was supposed to throw me off, yeah, it didn't work. So real quick, did you did you see the Beatles documentary? I know um I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. I hear it's great. I plan to see it. Okay. Because I wanted to check. It's great. I wanted to talk about it with you. So we'll do that next time. Baseball, uh, last thing. Um, you know, lockouts looming. The thoughts on what's happening, um, <laughs> if you can, in five minutes or less. Well, the lockout seems certain in the next day or so. Um, but that leaves them plenty of time to work things out. Fans don't really care until it gets to spring training or actually to opening day uh, if they're not playing. Let them work it out during the offseason is pretty much the attitude of most fans. Uh, without getting into all the issues, and I'm familiar with all of them, but why sort through all of them now? Here's the big picture thing that I hope neither side loses sight of. The game is in need of reform. Baseball is supposed to have a pleasing leisurely pace, but a pace and a rhythm. Not this lethargic, drawn-out thing. And what analytics has done to baseball, which may be good from a competitive standpoint, is terrible from the standpoint of entertainment. And so both sides have to realize you can debate what should be done, and there's reasonable disagreement there. But, but there are reforms that are needed to make the game more appealing as an entertainment product, more appealing to television, more appealing to paying fans the outcome of which will be that the pie itself will grow instead of being stagnant or shrinking. Now, it's going to grow for all leagues to some extent now because of the advent of legalized gambling. But it will grow larger if the, if the product is more appealing. And the simple arithmetic here is, would you rather have, I'll use fake figures, would you rather have 60% of X or 50% of two times X? That's the enlightened way to look at it. Well, let's hope we have spring training. That's all I care about, spring training. They don't even have to play the you season. To, you just want spring training. I just want spring training. Bob, I always enjoy this. Um, anything you need to add here? We've mentioned the HBO show, MLB Network. You're still doing stuff there. Minor League Baseball is still a thought. You still want to do a, a, a team? Every time someone asks me about that, and I tell them truthfully that, yeah, it would be fun to do, and it's always been kind of on my bucket list, then a dozen different minor league teams, most of them with very interesting names, um, say, hey, when do you want to be here? <laughs> There's a seat waiting for you, which is very, very nice. But it's not something that I'm going to be able to do in the immediate future, if, if ever. But it was a nice thought. Anything else you'd like to add to the, the vast audience here today? 
I don't. I don't think so. I enjoyed this. I wasn't even that anxious to address all of these topics. <laughs> I, you know, you asked me to be on it. Come on, it's a St. Louis thing, and then probably in the world we live in, there'll be something out there from what I've just said to you, out of context with a clickbait headline. That's the consequence of this. I will try not to do that on my on my end. That will not well, be. No, you won't do. It. You well, won't do it. No, no hedging. Game six. 1986 World Series, Game 1, 1988 World Series. Kirk Gibson, Bill Buckner, which one's more influential in your life for you? That You were at both moments. Kirk Gibson, actually, because I think it's one of the most theatrical moments I have ever seen or been part of in sports. Okay. That's, that was my last question. That's all I have. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. Have fun with whatever you're doing next. Thank you, Brad. So that's Bob Costas here on Here's the Pitch. I thank him for joining me, and I thank you for joining me. Once again, the sponsors, Masses Restaurants, five locations, stlmasses.com. Check them out if you're going uh, through St. Louis. And big, big, fun guest coming up throughout the next few days. I want you to come here. Make sure you subscribe because I've got a big one. I'm very excited about it. Curb your enthusiasm. That's all I have to say. But uh, I want you to make sure you check that out. So subscribe so you can see when that's happening. But I thank you for watching. We'll see you next time.